Well, as we uh, kind of reconvene, I, I don't say this lightly. This really is the highlight of my week to be able to come and to gather with, with you uh, week in and week out. I, I look forward to Sundays, not just for the opportunity to preach, though I, I love that opportunity, but just to be able to gather with church family uh, like this is, is truly a joy. But let's take time now uh, just to prepare our hearts to receive God's word uh, this morning. So let's just take some time quietly to meditate and to prepare to receive God's word. Father, as we come before you today, Give us the ability to hear what you would have us to hear from your word. Teach us what you would have us to learn. Make us to be who you would have us to be. And do it all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. That's not a newsflash. Uh, We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, picking up in chapter 11. And as you make your way uh, there, in in this series, we have a series that we started somewhere back in the middle of the summer. We've been looking to answer two primary questions as we've journeyed through the Gospel of Mark. Two primary questions being, who is this Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? There really aren't any more important questions in the world than these. Like, who is this Jesus and what does it mean to to follow him? In today's text, like most of the texts that we look at throughout here, are, are, are once again bringing us front and center with the answers to these questions. So if you would, join me in Mark chapter 11, picking up in verse 27, where we read, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. 
Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So what we have here, the kind of the context, the scene at hand, is Jesus and his disciples are returning to Jerusalem. They're returning to the temple on what is now the Tuesday of Passover week. This is the day after Jesus had been in the temple and had flipped over tables and kicked people out and been blocking people from passing through and been teaching with authority in regards of the temple. And here come the religious leaders. Jesus is back. The religious leaders are coming to him. And why are they coming to him? Because they've got questions. They've got questions about what took place the day before, all the events that had transpired the day before, and they're coming and they're wanting to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? And that's, that's the issue at hand. In this text, it's the issue at hand throughout Mark's gospel. It's really the issue at hand throughout much of the Bible. It's a question of authority. It's the same thing that we see today. A question of authority. Who's going to tell me how to live? You're going to tell me? Who has authority to tell me how to live and how, what to do? Which is why we need to look at point number one. Jesus has all authority. Look with me at this question. How does Jesus here respond to the religious leaders' question here? How does he respond? Well, he responds with a question of his own. Kind of just a side note here, if you're coming at it from a, an evangelistic or an apologetics mode, of, a means of defending the faith, a lot of times we find ourselves on the defensive, don't we? Somebody asks a, us, us a question, we don't know the answer, we kind of get scared, we back up, but a, a good way to respond a lot of times is just with another question. Put it back in their court. That's what Jesus does here. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. All they have to do is answer Jesus' question, and he's going to give them the answer that they're looking for. And what's Jesus' question? He says, verse 30, was the baptism of John, John here being John the Baptist, was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven or from man? Answer me. And when he says the baptism of John the Baptist, he's really referring to all of John the Baptist's ministry here. He's referring to his teaching and his baptism, everything that he was doing. And what this is, is a brilliant question. Because what it does is it puts the religious leaders between the proverbial rock and a hard place. It puts them in a very tight predicament here because they're like, okay, if we answer from heaven then Jesus is going to ask us, then why did you not believe John? But if we answer from man, well, then the people are going to get mad at us. They're going to get upset with us. And why are the people going to get upset with them for answering from man? Because the people believe that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. 
So Jesus' question has definitely put the religious leaders here in, in a very tight spot. If they say John's, Baptist is, John's baptism is from God, then they're admitting that, that John was a prophet from God. And if John was a prophet from God, then the message of John is also from who? God. And John's message is all about who? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He came as a forerunner to Jesus. And guess what? The religious leaders, they don't believe that. They don't believe that that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, and they definitely don't believe that Jesus was a prophet of God, but the people do. They believe that John the Baptist was a prophet of God, and many of them believe that Jesus is a prophet of God. So if they say, the religious leaders being they, if they say that John's baptism is from human origin, it's from man, then what they're doing is they're publicly admitting that they don't believe that John was a prophet of God which is going to do what? It's going to upset the people. So how do they respond? We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. It's an answer, but it's a cop-out answer, right? But what we see here is even though it's a cop-out answer, it's definitely an answer of unbelief. And this is why Jesus responds the way he does. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, why does Jesus say that? Why does he just come out and say, hey, I am the son of God. I I am the creator of the universe. All things were created through me and for me. Why doesn't he just do that? Because even if he does, they're not going to believe him. They're not going to believe him. Think about it. What have we seen throughout Mark's gospel to this point? Whether it was in his teaching, whether it's in casting out demons or, or Maybe it's, it's healing or, or whether it's in the calming of the storms, the feeding of the thousands, forgiving sins, raising people from the dead. What have we seen over and over again? We've seen Jesus demonstrating his divine authority. We've seen him demonstrating his divine authority over and over and over again, which is all proof of his deity. But how do they respond? How, how has this generally been received? with confusion and with unbelief. Even from his own hometown, they're responding with unbelief. Why? (laughs) Because they don't believe. So even if Jesus were to answer their question, they're not going to believe. But church, this is very, very important. We need to. We need to understand what's being communicated here. We need to understand and believe that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. We need to believe and understand that all things were created through him and for him. And in him, all things are holding together. There is literally not one thing in the world, one thing in the universe that Jesus does not have complete authority over. We want proof. He proved it once and for all when after being killed and buried for three days, he rose from the grave. Proving he has authority even over death. Therefore, if Jesus rose from the dead, we need to, must believe everything that he said. We must understand that he has authority. Therefore, we are to submit And the we there is not just Christians. All people are to submit every avenue of our life to his authority. 
everything under the authority of Christ. And for those who, who do not hear and heed what Jesus says, look what, he look, well, look what comes next. What does Jesus do? He presents the religious leaders with parable. It's a parable that we need to, to, to look at and to understand ourselves. A parable being a, a figurative narrative used to make a point. Typically, the only way that you can understand a narrative is by coming to the, or by understand a parable is by coming to the one who's telling the parable. Now understand this is taking place in the courtyard of the temple. And when we think about the courtyard of a temple, we're not talking about just a foyer inside of a church building. This is a wide open area outside of the, the temple area where Jews and Gentiles are all gathered t- together in this area. This is where the buying and the selling and all of this is taking place. So you're talking about massive amounts of people all in this area. This is not taking place in a, in a kind of a corner somewhere or a private room. This is a parable directed specifically to the religious leaders that every single person is kind of listening in on. They all are able to gather in and listen to what's being said. And what Jesus does is he proceeds to tell this parable of a man who planted a vineyard. He he prepared it. He did everything to get it ready. The man owns the vineyard, right? And when it comes time for harvest, harvest of the grapes on the vine, the owner sends a servant to get some fruit. Hey, go get some fruit from the vineyard. And what happens when he sends the servant to to go get from there? The tenants beat the servant and they send him away. So then what does the owner do? Something quite surprising, actually. He sends another servant and he goes and basically is treated the exact same way. And then what does the owner do? Even something more surprising, he sends another servant. And then how do they treat that servant? They kill him. And then we're told that there were many others who who went. We don't know the the exact number of the many others here, but some they beat and some they killed. And then what we see is every single servant the owner sends, the tenants reject. Every single one. Until the owner decides to send his own son. Which is like him sending himself. If you're sending your son, you're sending the heir, he's coming with the authority of the owner. He's coming with the authority of the father. Surely they're going to listen to him, right? Surely they're going to submit to his authority. But no, what do the tenants do? They reject him and they kill him as well. It should be sounding familiar to us. This is where Jesus poses the question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? It's verse 9. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is what he's telling us in the text. This is what Jesus is telling the religious leaders in front of all the watching crowd that's gathered around. Now, previous parables that we have looked at have been secretive. They have been hard to understand, really impossible to understand unless Jesus is then giving the answer to the parable and telling the meaning of the parable. Not this one. Not, not this one. Jesus isn't being very secretive here at all. It's, it's pretty easy to kind of put two plus two together and understand where he's coming from and what he's referring to or specifically who he's referring to in, the, in these texts. The tenants are who? The religious people. The religious leaders here specifically. And who's the owner? The owner is God. 
The owner of the, uh, here is God, and he's the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard is who? Israel. Israel belongs to God. Remember, he created her. You remember Abraham, Abram? And was, was Abraham looking around and saying, man, I really wish God would make me a father of many nations. I wish he would just make of me a great people. Was that what, was that what Abraham was saying? No, Abraham wasn't even thinking of God on the radar. Abram was a pagan. He had no interest in God whatsoever. And so what does God do? God comes and sovereignly says, you, Abram, who have a wife who is infertile, can't have children, of you I'm going to make a, a, a people of many nations, a, a people so vast that you can't even count the number. And what does God do? He creates for himself people. With grace and with care, with mercy and planning. He, he creates her. He cares for her. He, he preserves her. He's patient with her. Which brings us to point number two. God is patient and loving to rebellious sinners. God is patient and loving to rebellious sinners. And that's, I think, where we can all say a collective, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he is patient and loving to rebellious sinners. Think about it. If you owned a property or leased a property, and that applies to some of you in this room, you have, you have rental properties. And, and so if you own a property or leased a property out, what would, what, would be, what would you expect from the tenants? I mean, like bare minimum expectations, right? That they're going to keep the lease agreement, right? That, that's what you would expect for the tenants to keep the lease agreement, well, these clearly don't. These religious leaders don't keep the lease agreement. They reject the owner's authority. They don't submit to his will. They don't produce good fruit. And what we need to understand, while this is specifically pointed to the religious leaders, we're just as guilty or have been. We can all find ourselves here in the text. Jesus is talking about the religious leaders, but it's just as applicable to all of us. But we come back and we say, praise God, he is patient and loving towards rebellious sinners. Amen? Notice how he doesn't bring immediate judgment like they or we deserve. He doesn't. What, what, is, what does the owner do instead? What does God do instead? He sends servant after servant after servant. Who are the servants? Prophets. He's sending prophet after prophet after prophet, despite them being rejected and beaten and even killed. He just keeps sending and he keeps sending until he sends his beloved son. Why? Well, obviously it's grace. Obviously it's mercy. Obviously it's love. But it's to give the tenants is to give the tenants the opportunity to avoid God's just judgment. It's to give them an opportunity to receive God's grace. It's showing his abundant love to just keep sending despite the tenants' rejection over and over again. Do, do you see the patience and the love of our great God <laughs> that's just jumping off the text here? 
That despite our sinful rebellion, he, he patiently and lovingly sent his own son, his beloved son, to redeem us from our sin. You think about how he has patiently and lovingly placed men and women in your life over the years to come and, and to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, to, to tell of you, tell you of the love of God. Think about all, before you even came to faith in Christ, if you are a believer, all the different times that you would have heard the gospel before then. Most of us can't think of the number of times that we had heard the gospel before then. Maybe it was Sunday school teachers or small group leaders or Bible study leaders or a college minister or a youth minister or pastors or podcasts or authors or reading a devotional, the moms, dads, brothers, sisters, the, the list could go on and on and on. And for some, it doesn't go on and on and on. But for many of us, for most of us who have come to faith in Christ, even if we came to faith in Christ at a very early age, we did not come to faith the very first time we heard the gospel, did we? No, it took having seeds planted and watered and watered and fertilized and like somebody coming over, like we've got to jumpstart this thing somehow and fertilized and fertilized and prayed for, and prayed for, and sharing some more. And then, by God's sovereign hand, he gives the growth. We see that in our own lives. But we look back, what did God do? He kept patiently and lovingly sending people into our path to tell us about the love of God. That's good news. That's love. That's patience. And as Christians, we get to be a part of this. We get to be a part, not just recipients, but presenters. We get to join God in the mission of God. We get to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. That there is a way, a only way, a single way for sinners to be made right before holy God. We get to tell people this. We get to tell them this good news that there is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ. That's good news, folks. We get to be a part of it and it's exhilarating. <laughs> it's exhilarating and it's terrifying all at the same time. Just being real, it is exhilarating and terrifying all at the same time. It's exhilarating and being able to, to see somebody who has never heard the gospel hear it for the very first time. It, it's exhilarating for somebody who, who has heard the gospel maybe multiple times over to now hear it and begin to click. And they begin now to process these gospel truths. It's an exhilarating thing to be a part of. It can also be terrifying because of all the, the feelings and the emotions and the, the fears that, that come in our life. I remember a particular cab ride, cab ride in the, the UAE, in the United Arab Emirates. Leslie and I were over in Dubai leading a team over there. And we were, we'd been out to dinner that night and should have been a 10 to 15 minute cab ride from our restaurant back to our hotel. And uh, I get in the front seat, Leslie and another lady on our team, they get in the back, and we begin to make our way um, back to our hotel. Well, we're on our way back to the hotel, and traffic comes to a dead stop, halt. There is a high-rise tower 
apartment building that is on fire. And we, we, we're stuck in traffic, and, which means cab driver is now stuck in traffic with us, all right? And I just feel the Lord impressing upon my, my heart to share the gospel with this man. So we, we strike up conversation, and I begin to kind of ask him some probing questions and, and find out he's from Syria. He, he's, he's moved to the UAE to come to provide for, get work for his family. So even working as a cab driver in, in Dubai pays more money than he can make in Syria, and he's sending money back home uh, to Syria. And so we're in the cab, and I begin to kind of play the, the, the dumb tourist uh, card, and, which is kind of easy for me. Uh, I just play the, like, the dumb American tourist, and I just start kind of asking all kinds of touristy kind of questions. The reason being is I want to bridge to the gospel. But at the same time, you talk about the terrifying part in the back of your mind, I'm also fully aware that it is illegal to share the gospel in, in Dubai. I know it's, it's, you cannot evangelize someone in Dubai or for most Middle Eastern or Asian cultures. You can't legally do that. Well, that's not going to stop me, but I'm going to figure out a way to be able to approach the gospel just like I would in America. So I'm, I'm engaged in conversation. I'm thinking through how, uh, how to do this. So I'm asking him questions about his life. And, and I just go, go for kind of the jugular. And I'm asking, okay, like, are you, are you a Muslim? And I'm like, I know the answer to the question. But again, I'm playing dumb American uh, here. And I just ask, are you a Muslim? And he, I said, like, can you tell me about your faith? And I start asking him about how they're made right with God, or in their case, Allah. And, um, and so I'm, I'm going through, I'm, I'm asking them all these kind of probing questions. And he's giving me answers. And so then I just kind of turn the question and I say, okay, I just have a curious question. So I know you're talking about having to pray five times a day and do all these various things to be right with Allah. So what if you were to be in that apartment fire right over there and you were to die? How would Allah receive you? And he kind of came back with a little, just a a great sense of uncertainty there. Just a, a great sense of uncertainty. To which I immediately respond. And I asked him, I said, wow. That's nothing like my God. It's nothing like my God. Why did I ask? Why did I respond that way? Because I'm then wanting to him to ask me about my God. I'm wanting him to think, well, what is your God like? And guess what he does? He asks me about my God. And guess what we begin to do for the next hour plus? We begin to talk about the gospel begin to just lay forth the good news of Jesus Christ. This man's never heard the gospel before. Never. And he is asking questions like, what do you mean? Like, really? Like, this? he's asking question after question. And Leslie and the lady in the back, they're just praying. They're praying that the Lord will save this man. And we're sharing, I'm sharing the gospel with him there in that moment. And then the, we pull up to the hotel. And I'm like, just do like a longer lap around the city. I don't care about the cab fare. Let, let, or if you want, hey, let's go inside. Let's continue to talk. Because I'm like, this man is about to come to Christ. You're talking about exhilarating moment of evangelism. That's it right here. Like I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with this man and he's receiving, he's talking. And, and it comes to a point where it's like, man, I want you to believe this. Are you asking, do you believe this? And he's like, I, I'm just not, I'm not sure. 
And I can, he's got so much there from historical background. And I'm just like, oh, I want you to believe. And I wish I could just stand here before you today and be like, he came to faith in Christ and we baptized him three weeks later. I mean, I wish I could be able to tell you all of these things. I don't know. <laughs> he left that night and I, I've never seen him again. But I know without a doubt that that was a sovereign encounter with God, by, that created by God. What was intended to be a 10 to 15 minute cab ride turned into something much longer. Where this man who had never heard the gospel before heard the gospel, was contemplating, wrestling with the gospel. He had women in the back praying for his salvation. And from that day forward, every time the Lord brings him to mind, he has more people praying for his salvation. Guess what? Many of you will likely join in praying for his salvation if he has not already come to faith in Christ yet. Completely understand this is the love and the patience of God. Maybe somebody followed up afterwards. We don't know. Somebody followed up afterwards with us, right? But also understand, being the circumstances of where we were, this could have turned out way different. Cab drivers there in Dubai are often used by the government to kind of turn in suspicious activity whether religious or otherwise. They hear something, people talking in the back of the cabs. They think that the driver doesn't understand English and they go and they report to the government. So I don't, I don't know how this could have turned out. It could have turned out way different. Could have turned out way, way different. Which is also the reminder that we're looking at in the text here. Then point number three, we must not be surprised by opposition to our message. He could have easily opposed the message. What we see in the text, we see out the New Testament, the prophets were rejected because of their message. That's Old Testament. Obviously, John the Baptist, being a prophet, he was rejected for his message. I mean, he, John the Baptist tells Herod and his wife, who was the sister-in-law and all of that mess, it's not lawful for you to be with her it's not biblical for you to be with her. And what happens to John the Baptist? He loses his head. The disciples, they're persecuted. They're rejected for their teaching. There are countless Christian martyrs throughout history who have been rejected simply for sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We see it all throughout history. And that's why we must not be surprised to opposition to our message. In fact, we must expect that it will come. The gospel has been and always will be offensive to a world that rejects authority. And that's the world we live in. A world that rejects authority. A world that says, don't you tell me how to live, bro. <laughs> don't tell me how to live. Who are you to speak into my life? It's a world, it's a society that rejects authority. And let's be honest, this fear of rejection is what drives much of our fear about evangelism. It's a, it's a world of what ifs. What if they say no? What if they get offended? What if I make them mad? What if they get angry? What if they get upset? What if, what if, what if, what if? But what if they believe? What if they believe? Huh? What if somebody would have said what if to you? 
and said, no, I don't think it's worth it. What if? And that's where we can't forget whose authority we're under. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, himself. He has received all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Lo, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's that first part. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. The one who has all authority is with us to the end. Let that sink in. The one who has all authority is with us to the end. That should both comfort us and embolden us. Church, we are under the authority of Christ. We are servant messengers of the creator of the universe. The one holding all things together by the word of his power. He is the one who is saying, go Therefore, and make disciples. This isn't some manager of a piggly wiggly, all right? This is the creator of the universe. And some of you are like, what's a piggly wiggly? All right? It's a southern food line, all right? That's that's kind of what that is, all right? Or a sable, I don't know. But that's not the point of the message. This isn't just some random Joe. He's the creator of the universe holding all things together by the word of his power, which means if he stops holding all things together by the word of his power, he has all authority and praise God that in his patient love towards sinful people, he continues to send out servant messengers of the gospel. He continues to send them out. He continues to send us out. Why? Because the message is urgent and his love is great. His love is great. God continues to patiently and lovingly pursue, sending his church under his authority to make disciples of all nations. But this pursuit will not last forever. It will not last forever. In the parable, after the tenants kill the son, what does Jesus ask in verse 9? What will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Which brings us to point number four. God's judgment will come to those who reject the son. God's judgment will come to those who reject the son. Jesus tells the religious leaders, paraphrasing here, because you have rejected me, because you have rejected God, you will receive the judgment of God. Overarching point of this text, overarching point, anyone who rejects the Son of God will be destroyed by God. It's true then, and it's true today. It's why it's imperative for those who've never heard the gospel to, to hear the good news of Jesus. Why? Because when Christ returns, there will be no second chances. There will be no second chances. 
It's why it's imperative for those who have heard to, to keep hearing. Because everyone who rejects the Son of God, everyone who doesn't submit to his authority, will be destroyed by God. That's the overarching point. But we also must see this, eye, this through the lens and the eyes of the original readers. Let's kind of zoom in to immediate context and application for them. Look at their context in reading in verse 9. The owner will come and destroy the tenants. God will come and destroy the religious leaders and give Israel to others. And what do we see historically? By 70 AD, less than 40 years after this event, clearly in their lifetime, the temple is completely destroyed once and for all, bringing an end to the entire religious system of sacrifices, of priests, of rituals and ceremonies that depend on it. Why? Because it failed. It failed. But Christ did not. Christ did not fail. What do we see again from John? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Kill me and I will conquer death. (laughs) I will rise from the dead. That's why Christ is now our temple. Sinners come to God, both Jews and Gentiles, Who are the others? We're not talking about the show of lost here. We're talking about the Gentiles are the others. The Jews and Gentiles are made right with God through the blood of Christ alone. Not by any other means. We are made right. Wretched sinners are made right before holy God by the blood of Christ. Because he took our sin and we received his righteousness. We were made right before holy God. But anyone who rejects the son of God will be destroyed by God. Which brings us to point number five, our last point. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone. Look what Jesus says in verses 10 and 11. Have you not read the scripture? It's like, yes, they've read the scripture. They would have prided themselves on reading the scripture. Jesus, have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is Jesus quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. What he's doing here is he's obviously referring to himself. See, whether it's the words of the prophets or the words of the scripture or his own words and teaching or the works that he's done, the people have rejected Jesus. The religious leaders specifically have rejected Jesus. But what has the Lord done? He has taken who the religious people have rejected and he's made him the cornerstone. The cornerstone being the most important stone in the building. The most important stone in the structure. It's the stone providing stability and symmetry to everything else. You remove this stone and nothing else holds together. You remove this stone, nothing's lining up straight. Jesus is the cornerstone. And it's marvelous. And it's all the Lord's doing. But the religious leaders, they don't 
They don't think so, do they? No. And many people today don't think so either. Why? Because they don't see Jesus rightly for who he is. That's why this chapter ends with some very haunting words. Extremely haunting words. So they left him and went away. They left him and went away. There's nothing worse than seeing people walk away from Jesus, rejecting Jesus. You you don't do that if you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You don't do that if you believe Jesus lived and died to pay the penalty for your sin. You don't do that. And that's why if we get Jesus wrong, we get everything else wrong. If we see Jesus as just another part of our lives, just another part of our lives, like he he has a place alongside a bunch of other things in our life, and this is the way he's most commonly treated. Like Jesus is just another box in our life. Jesus box, and we got the box for work, and the box for family, and the box for entertainment, and the box for all of our kids' activities. We have all these various different boxes in our life. And if we see Jesus that way, then we have failed to see Jesus rightly for who he is. We have failed to understand what it means for him to have absolutely, absolute authority over everything in our lives. We have failed to understand what it means for him to be the cornerstone of our life. See, if we don't answer the question, who is this Jesus, rightly, if we don't answer that question rightly, then our entire life will be unstable. Our entire life will, will, will not line up. Whether we realize it or not, it won't. But if we get Jesus right, if we see him for who he really is, we're submitting our our life to his authority, then and only then will life really begin to make sense. Only then. Then and only then will we see the world as God intends for us to see the world. But if we see Jesus wrong, if we see Jesus wrong, then we get everything else wrong as well. We get everything else wrong. And then what the temptation is, or the tendency is, or the normative pattern that we end up seeing within our culture is that we begin to build upon a different cornerstone. We're building upon something. And if that something is not Christ, it's not going to line up straight. It's not going to be stable. Even if those things are, are quote-unquote good things. I'm going to build it on my family. I'm going to build it on my job. I'm going to build it on making sure my kids have everything in this world. I'm, I'm going to build it upon making sure my marriage is the greatest marriage it can possibly be. I'm going to build it on just making a family. All of those things are good things. But if they're the cornerstone of your life, You're building your life on the wrong foundation. Which comes to the questions, is is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? These are questions that we need to reflect upon and ask ourselves. Is Jesus the cornerstone of your life today? Do you recognize that Jesus has all authority? And are you submitting to the authority of Christ in your life? These are questions that I want us wrestling with and thinking with. 
at the same time, remembering the patience and the love of our great God. He continues to pursue. He continues to wait. So many avenues of our life. But church, he has all authority. His will for our life is way better than anything we can come up with. Are we submitting to him today? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for providing clear warnings such as these. We thank you for making it known that anyone who rejects your son will receive your just judgment. But we also thank you that you are patient and loving toward rebellious sinners. We thank you for sending servant messengers into our lives, making it possible for us to hear and respond. And if there's one here or multiple ones here today who have never believed, Lord, we ask for you to to make Jesus irresistible to them today. And we ask that, that all of us will be submissive to your authority, that we will be obedient to your word, And that we will join in your mission of of making disciples of all nations. Lord, we ask again that we will be faithful to plant and faithful to water. And that we'll trust you to give the growth. We ask this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.